Yeah, it's, uh, what, wow, it's so great to be here. I've been on the journey since uh, I got to know Todd and now Hannah and Michael with you all. I've visited with you all. I know you all miss that old factory over there on Spring Garden, right? You just sit here with nostalgia. But uh, man, what an amazing building. I mean, I love this building. I love it, love it, love it. It is perfect, strategic. But I think all of you who are part of Hope Chapel should know uh, this, this gift of this building is an expression of his love for you and his desire to bless you and to create favor uh, among you uh, in your mission to see Greensboro flourish under the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So what a thrill to be here. And, uh, and Todd is a beautiful man. You're so blessed to have a wonderful pastor like Todd. Um, I've known of him uh, and known about him through other people who love him and treasure their friendship with him. And uh, Todd, you're the kind of guy that I want to be my pastor now that I'm getting older and feebler. Uh, uh, a lot of you know I, I have been involved in starting churches and Valerie is with me this morning and she's really the church planner. She's the one who organizes all the people, the nursery, teaches Sunday school, gets the women fired up. I'm just the pretty face. So, uh, you know, uh, but just to kind of warm up, I, I love this series on... Um, on helping people in their marriages. Todd just having a vision he shared with me back earlier this year. We need to do some things that are intentional and strategic to help uh, marriages in their journey. Uh, the church should be the place that fosters, encourages growing healthy marriages. Sadly, often it is not. So the fact that Todd had a vision for this and wanted to create this uh, series where groups meet on, couples meet on Wednesday night to follow up the message is what I want to be about until I go to be with Jesus. So it's a thrill to be a part of this and pick up number three in this series and talk to you a little bit about conflict and how you think about conflict in your relationship with each other. Now, if you're here and you're not married, let me encourage you that we're all in conflict on one level or another. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about will apply. Uh, I'm going to be being specific speaking specifically to husbands and wives, uh, but, uh, you know, if you have friendships uh, any, uh, at work, conflict is just a part of uh, who we are and what we do. Uh, one of a, a famous preacher teacher says, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Uh, I love that line. I just love the way it's written. Uh, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. The world says to you, Here's your playground. The Word of God says it is a battleground. Uh, we live in a battleground. Virginia Beach is just another painful reminder that we live in a battleground. Uh, there's a war inside of us. There's a war that the world brings to us. Uh, there's a war that our enemy brings to us. So we're always in war. And how do you live in a fallen world where there's so much conflict? And you see it most keenly in marriages, sadly. Uh, and, uh, and sadly, most marriages don't do well when it comes around this issue of conflict. So just to warm up a little bit, kind of like stretch our emotional muscles a little bit. So if you're a husband here today sitting with your wife, I want you to turn to your wife and say, beauty. We hear you say, beauty to your wives. All right. All right. So wives, I want you to turn and look at your husbands and say, Gorilla. <laughs> All right. Get a little beauty and beast. I didn't want to call you guys beast, uh, but uh, 
but I want you to go back with me uh, all along in my journey. Once I begin to understand grace, the gospel, I begin to realize how important counseling is in helping people, helping people like myself. I've been in and out of counseling over the years, and I would not be standing here were it not for gifted men and women who've sat with me and listened to my pain, my struggle, my problems, and pointed me to Jesus in a way that, as Todd shared in this journey, I'm different because counselors are my heroes. They're the people who sit and weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, but really help people get to the place where they can receive the love of God. Uh, so, wow, what a privilege. So, in my training, I want you to go with me. I got a chance to go through a continuing education uh, in counseling, and we were watching a series of counseling sessions with probably one of the most gifted counselors in our country. Uh, so, I'm under his tutelage, and I'm watching him counsel a couple. Now, why this couple agreed to be videotaped, that's not something I would ever agree to do, and Valerie would never agree to do. Hell no. We're not doing that, you know. Uh, we're not putting ourselves on video, you know. That's not happening. But this couple did, and I'm so glad they did. I mean, they had the courage to do it, but this was one of these rock star couples. They were strong in the church, strong in their community. Everybody loved it. These are the amazing Christians who have this amazing marriage, do amazing ministry, and yet 20 years into their marriage, the wife had fallen into a deep depression. I mean, she was severely depressed. So when you watched her on video, she'd be sitting in her chair and she'd be just humped over like this. The guy's kind of sitting there like Akuna Matata. You know, my wife's depressed, but we'll, you know, the counselor help her. And uh, so you're kind of watching this counselor trying to help them understand why is she so depressed? She pulled out of teaching Bible studies. She pulled out all these ministry stuff, and she is down. Um, and so the counselor is just kind of talking, asking questions. First session, second session. And I'm watching how he's carefully creating a safe place for them to talk. He's helping her trust him to really go after her heart. Um, and so we'll kind of watch it, but after each session, and they're like 45, 50 minutes, so I'm walking away frustrated. I'm at eight on the Enneagram, so let's get after it. Let's get it done, you know. Uh, let's fix these people. Uh, but he's just patiently waiting, waiting, waiting. And then so at the sixth session, he says to her, uh, basically, um, tell me about the first couple years of your marriage. Now, these are two very strong personalities, uh, gifted people. Um, and, and the husband says, oh, listen, uh, when we first got married, we just fought all the time. Our first two years were hell because we're constantly fighting. And he said, at some point, you know, I just realized it's not worth fighting with her. She's too strong. Um, I'm tired of just being in the battle. So I just decided that from now on, I was going to let her win. That's what he said. I'm going to let her win. At that point, she lifted her head and looked over at him and said, basically, is it true? I think it's true that you've hated me for 20 years because of that. Now, right at that point, <laughs> the light starts to shine. But here's this couple that are going through the motions of ministry and life together. All along, this husband was carrying this bitterness towards his gifted 
wife. And because he'd abdicated and given up on her, he was living like everything was okay. We're great. Hey, how are you doing? We're great. We're doing great. We're going to this conference. I'm teaching this Bible study. But for 20 years, they were living a lie. Um, there are two things I want to share with you this morning from Colossians 3. I love the message. You can go read it in the ESV and IV. But in verse 9, um, and this is our first point, we want to learn how to become more honest. We want to start to learn how to grow in our honesty. And I just want you to listen to the Word of God when God says to you, do not lie to one another. As straight up, clear as it can be. Do not lie to one another. Uh, when you think about the trajectory of our lives, our relationships, our marriages, one of the things that really trips us up and gets us out of the trajectory of what God has for us is that we're hiding. Uh, I've loved listening to Ben's message, Todd's message last week. If you haven't heard Todd's message on shame, it's worth the price of admission. It's free, but it's really good. Uh, but the problem here is for all of us, whether you're married or not, is that we're all hiding. We're all hiding. I love the Yiddish proverb that a half-truth is a whole lie. How you doing? I'm fine. I'm, I'm good, man. I'm good. And if you're familiar with recovery, uh, fine stands for, if you're taking notes, I'll speak slowly, foul, insecure, neurotic, and exhausted. So, you know, when you say to me, fine, I'm thinking, this guy's messed up. <laughs> I, I think there's something really going on. The other side of that, I'm going to use the sanitized uh, version for the church here, but fine stands for freaking in need of everything. So if you're really honest, and I don't know, most of you are here because you want to be that honest. Man, I need all the help I can get. And I'm so weary of pretending to be somebody and leaning on things that really don't matter. And I'm so tired of hiding. Do not lie to one another. Some of you are familiar with the ministry of Paul Tripp, and he describes three different kinds of relationship and marriage. And so we're going to look at the first one. This is would define some marriages. You'll see the playoff, kind of like on Wednesday night, Ben Joan taught about attachment theory. Well, we're just going to talk about in your marriage, you're taking one of two roles. You're either isolating or you're immersing. So the frustrated relationship. Here's our first one. This comes from Paul Tripp. Here one person moves towards isolation while the other moves towards immersion. One dreams of being safe, the other dreams of being close and intimate. Can you see the problems brewing? The isolation feels smothered, the immersion feels rejected. Since both regularly have their expectations frustrated, the relationship can be perpetually disappointing. Folks, disappointment is a big deal. <laughs> Usually, most marriages don't fall apart and decline and end up in sort of this dead end or in divorce because of some big thing. It's always because there's a lot of little things going on where you're not talking about disappointment. What's really disappointing you about your husband? What's really disappointing to you about your wife? What's disappointing to you about your friends? 
and because we're so committed to the southern thing of, oh, I like you so much, you're my best friend. That guy is such a jerk. You know, he never responds to my text in a timely manner. Hey, it's great to see you. I love you. You're, you're looking good. Man, he needs to lose some weight, you know? It's the southern thing of, I'm really nice to you in person, but behind your back, uh, I'm trashing you. That's why Flannery O'Connor talks about the Christian church. He says, she says in the South, she's no longer living, but she says we live in a Christ-haunted South. And just you have to think about that a little bit. That'll get your minds kind of spinning here. But there was a time when Jesus was real and people were honest and they were repenting and they were confessing and they were being true to each other. But then pretense and hypocrisy and everything started to take over. All right, the Amesh relationship. Okay, let's talk about this one. Here, both people move toward immersion. While you might think that similar expectations would lead to peace and harmony, it actually produces more problems because they are so dependent on each other. They ride the roller coaster of each other's emotions and are easily hurt when the other does not meet their needs. The relationship can become exhausting. Do you know any couples like this where they're just... They want to so be in love with each other, but they're so codependent on each other. And they just kind of ride this roller coaster of high highs and low lows. And the old joke is they're two ticks and no dog. Okay. <laughs> they're trying to find life from each <coughs> other. But no matter how much they try and draw from the other, the thing they long for, it's always disappointing. Okay, third relationship, the isolated relationship, and this is the relationship I'll confess that Valerie and I live in, um, is here both people move toward isolation. Each person is aware of the dangers of relationship and are and opting for safety and seclusion. Conversations are limited, safe, and impersonal. Both people created in the image of God long for some form of connection, no matter how small it may be. The relationship can be empty and disappointing. Uh, I know this well. I grew up in a very volatile, emotional family uh, uh, from my mother. She was very unstable. You never knew what to expect. So I am committed by default to playing it safe. I do not like conflict. I like your conflict, but I don't like my own. When I, when I uh, left Friendly Hills to go to Nashville, a woman who knew me well, she crossed this, stitched this for me, and I've got it so I can see it, where it says, I thrive on conflict, except my own. So uh, she, that was her way of saying, remember, <laughs> don't act like you don't have conflict. Uh, I, and so, <clears throat> but for most of us, I think that's where most of the people, I, my guess, if I was going to guess, that's what's going on in most of the marriages here this morning. Playing it safe. Avoiding real intimacy through talking about hard things. So what is your relational style? How do you get free from the commitment to be dishonest with your spouse about what's really going on? How do you get free? Well, here's where we need to hear some good news. Here's where we need the gospel. Jesus has come to make us different now. I encourage you as an application from the message this morning, take some time today. It won't take you long. Read Colossians. It's a majestic epistle. It's uh, soaring illustrations. I mean, inspiring illustrations, brilliant aphorisms. It's just like, wow, 
it's just so powerful. Um, a good friend of mine who loves this letter is written in A.D. 62, so about 30 years after Jesus' death. Paul's in prison. He'll end the letter by saying, remember my chains at the end of the letter. He's not talking about his marriage because <laughs> he's not married. Uh, but uh, it's just a beautiful epistle, but it exalts the glory of Christ. It brings in a clear focus, the preeminence of Christ, that the theme of the book is that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's condescended and come down to live among us so that we can have relationships so that by the very nature of the relationships, people say, I want to know what you have. I want to know because I see the way you love each other. I see the way you forgive each other. Mom, the way you, you love Dad. Just, it just, it's, there's something there that I know that Jesus has given you. Dad, the way you serve Mom. It's just, it just it speaks to me. I, I see Jesus in your relationship. And the goal here, the longing here is, no matter how long you've been married, is you want your children, no matter what their age, but you want your grandchildren, like Valerie and I have four now, we, we want them to see the power of the love of Jesus in the way we love each other. And they can tell. You don't have to explain it to them. You don't have to read Bible verses or prayer, but they are very astute observers of our uh, style. But Jesus has come to free us from hiding so that we discover the joy of being lovingly real. A friend of mine says, when you start to live this way, it's a life of joyful anguish. So just put those two words together. Marriage that's really healthy and growing has joyful anguish. Okay? Because you have to die. (laughs) I have to die. If you really understand what it means to be in intimacy with Jesus, Jesus says to you every day, come and die. This is a great line from Dietrich Bonhoeffer because he got it. Uh, He was not married, but he got it. That if you're going to have a vital relationship with Jesus, somebody's got to die. And most of the time, if I'm honest, I want other people to die so my life can be a lot easier and better. I'm so thrilled when Valerie wants to die. Uh, that really helps me a ton, you know. Um, uh, and I'm so thrilled when Todd wants to die because I'm sort of, you know, overseeing his work. Or Hannah wants to die. I'm, I'm so happy, you know, because it takes the pressure and responsibility off of me versus, man, the way you're dying, I want to die that way too. So Jesus has come to invite us into this powerful reality that we can learn to be honest through the cross. That we can boast in the cross and its power because it's giving us courage to lay down our lives, our reputations, our shame at the foot of the cross, to come there together because one of the great lines from Billy Graham is is that the ground is level at the cross where all works in progress here We all need the same things. And we find them in the power of what Jesus did for us on the cross. When you read Colossians, man, he's just bringing this point on. Paul's coming after it again and again. Listen to this verse when he's talking about what Jesus says. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Uh, There's no part of your story that Jesus has not died for. 
There's no part of your present that Jesus has not died for. There's no part of your future that Jesus has not died for. And part of learning to live out what Colossians 3 is about is saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Stay in that lane. The peace of Christ means is that, Jesus, you have satisfied all my longings. Your love for me is better than life itself. That's Psalm 63. David is saying, your love for me is better than life itself. For me to have courage to enter into conflict and to be honest with Valerie or with you means that Jesus needs to fill me up with what he accomplished for me on the cross so that I am free to be the person that he made me to be, redeemed me to be. Jesus lived a perfect life. Now, this is so important for you and me because most of us struggle with not feeling that we're enough we're afraid of being honest because we know we're not enough which is true but there is one who is enough who is worthy who says to you if you know him you are worthy because i made you worthy of this love relationship with me that sets you free to be honest you don't have to be perfect because i was perfect jesus kept the law perfectly for us The famous theologian, uh, J. Gresham Machen, when he was dying, said to his best friend, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. Now, in theology, active obedience is Jesus lived the life. He was the second Adam. He kept the law perfectly, joyfully. He never wavered. He never fell into sin. He kept the law perfectly because Machen, who was very performance-driven, wanted to feel like I have to be able to bring something into heaven to make myself worthy of God's forgiveness and acceptance. When the gospel's freeing you up, the active obedience of Christ is absolutely thrilling. You don't have to be perfect. You are more than enough because Jesus has made you worthy of the Father's love. But it gets even better because through his perfect sacrifice... The power of his blood frees you from the guilt and shame of your past failures, your present failures, your future failures. When John in Revelation says, this is how they overcame the accuser of the brothers. Now, some of you are aware of that, but most of you have some awareness. There's an interior critic that you carry inside that you accuse yourself of this and that and hold yourself in bondage, much like the mean stepmother in Cinderella. And rather than being able to celebrate your beauty and the joy of who you are, you're just saying, you're, you suck. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Why can't you get your act together? Why can't you do what you know you should do? But the power of Jesus' blood has freed us up from self-pity. Uh, a good friend of mine who's an actor loves to do this kind of illustration. Hopefully it'll stay with you. When you're full of self-pity, you keep a little bowl on the stove of your soul that's martyr soup, okay? You feel bad about yourself. You're not doing what you said you'd do. You did something you regret. So rather than going and drinking deeply from the love and the blood of Christ, as we'll get to do here in a few minutes, you go and just start... Oh, I'm such a terrible person. I'm so bad. <laughs> I just never got to get, oh, oh. You know, and, you, and then your friend knocks the door and goes, oh, come share my martyr soup, martyr soup. I want you to feel as bad about me as I feel about myself, okay? 
The blood of Christ frees us from self-pity. And here is the amazing thing, and wait for it. Not only do we get the imputations of Christ's righteousness, the power of his blood, but now because of who we are in him, we get to live his life. We get to live a resurrected life. This is what's going on in most marriages. They're living a life of resignation. They've given up on their spouse. She's always going to be like that. She's never going to really change. He is, he is just such a mean man. He doesn't listen. And as much as I've cried to him and talked to him and asked him, uh, I guess I'm just going to hang on till heaven. A good friend of mine, a godly elder in the PCA, says that what his biggest fear for people in the church is that they settle. They resign themselves. This is as good as it gets. Where Jesus says, come and know me, and I'm going to fill you up with the power of my resurrection. Um, as you begin to understand who we are in Christ, this is a big theme in Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When that begins to happen to you, here's what you should look for as a result of this. That you're on tomorrow, on Monday, or this afternoon, or this week, you'll hear yourself going, I never knew Jesus was this good. He is so good. He's a good shepherd. He's a, oh my goodness, Jesus. This week, I was praying with a group of men that I meet with regularly. They're all broken, the F troop of men's ministry. These guys, some of you don't know that reference. I forgot. But for those of us who do, that was this goofy show uh, sitcom. But anyway, um, and a guy is in our group, and uh, he's been struggling. He's been stuck in so much stuff. And so in our group, because we've been meeting, we build trust and all this, he shares with us something that he has carried against his wife for 30-plus years. I kind of like the story we start off with. And as he begins to share it and realizes the guilt of the bitterness he's carried towards his wife, he begins to weep, sob. We get around him, we lay hands on him, we anoint him, we pray for him. So you can imagine the thrill I had the next day when he sent a text to a group of us saying, I met with my wife this morning, I asked for her to forgive me, and I forgave her. And she knows he's been carrying this for 30 plus years. Now again, they've kept that hidden, suppressed, not many people even know that story. But oh my goodness, I never knew Jesus was this good! (laughs) It was like, whoa! Power! I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And when that begins to happen, you want to become more like Jesus. And that's in this passage. To live the life that Christ has for you to live. In Colossians 1.27, it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Maybe this morning you're hiding, you're despairing, you're forgetting. But let me remind you, Jesus is in you. And the hope that's there of his glory coming into your life. We are in each other's story so we can help each other heal. So husbands and wives, you might never have heard this before, but let me just share with you. You're in your wife's story to help her heal. Sisters, you're in your husband's story to help them heal. If you can get a vision for that, it'll create empathy 
for your spouse? Where does my wife need more of the healing touch of Jesus? Where does my husband? Because a lot of what's broken in us and is as wrong as us is that we're wounded people who wound people. But by his wounds we are healed. And when you can begin to help your spouse see her wounds and his wounds, you'll know, you'll be, Jesus is oh, it's amazing. I mean, the joy that's flooding my wife's life and our home and the thrill and the joy. I, I forgot. I didn't believe it was possible. But Jesus is so good. He's so powerful. He's so real. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? And God, I need to tell you, I don't know what you were doing with my husband, but man, he, he's different. <laughs> he's listening. He's kind. He wants to pray with me. Oh my goodness, what's going on? So the second problem that, that's addressed here in Colossians 3 is this. We hide because we're afraid. And for every husband and wife here, you can talk to each other and just say, here's where you can be honest. Can I tell you what I'm afraid of? And go there. And you might need a counselor to help you there. But just to risk, here's a couple of fears I have about me and our marriage. Just be honest. Just go there and talk about it. You know, the number one command in the Bible, not the most important one, but the one that's there more than 300 times in the Bible is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Um... Jesus' perfect love comes to set us free from that kind of fear. His perfect love is the only thing that can change you and can change your marriage. But if you're sitting here today and you're going, Clyde, I'm, I'm not married, but I, I'm so lonely and I feel so lost. And I come to Hope Chapel and I love everything about it, but I want to know that perfect love. I want to know what it means to be loved the way that I see these other people talk about it. And I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus is talking to you. He wants to be honest with you. And he's not afraid of your pain. He's not afraid of your shame. He's not afraid of your anger. He's died for all that. So that as Daniel led us into worship so beautifully, the Father stands ready to give you a big bear hug and say, Welcome home. Come and be forgiven. My son did it all so that you and I might have a relationship where I can hold you and weep with you and rejoice with you. So would you come to Christ this morning? Would this be your day where you know you've been pretending and acting like you know Jesus, but you know you don't, and God knows you don't? So, quick story. I'm in Minneapolis in January, which... I know it's crazy, but I'm there in Minneapolis in January. It's five degrees and 20 below at night. But I'm at a men's conference. A guy comes on our men's retreat. Uh, he fills out a prayer card, come on the retreat. I need to become a Christian on this weekend. Uh, that's what he wrote on his card. Now, he'd been a churchgoer his whole life, a leader in his church. Um, and, uh, and so one of the exercises we do leading into your first... Uh, small group experience is all about deception and deceit. Uh, and so the prayer team gets his prayer card. And they say, this guy says he wants to become a Christian on this weekend. Well, let's start praying. He goes into his group based on the modeling about deception and says to the group leader, who's one of my best friends, says, 
Bill, I want to become a Christian right now. <laughs> 74 years old, owner of his own company, churchgoer, such a nice guy. He had everybody fooled, but he knew, and God knew, he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I don't want that to be true of any of you, that you can think that you can continue to live in pretense or act as if everybody thinks you're a Christian, but you know you're not, and God knows you're not. Oh, to be free from the fear of admitting that you need a Savior this morning. It's what we pray for. It's what we long for. It's what we're after. There's a great blog that my friend Roger Edwards just put out this week. Um, and uh, I'll just read you the first few phrases. You can find it on the barmacenter.org. But the gist of it is, how do you respond to criticism in your marriage? So when Valerie starts to get negative or critical towards me, which doesn't happen very often, but when she does, you know, um, my first response is to flinch, is to be afraid. <laughs> I get fearful. Listen to what Roger writes. We have trouble with hearing truth precisely because we don't hear it through love. Instead, we hear it through fear. I'm afraid that my, what my wife might say about my interaction with my son. I am afraid I will have to change. I'm afraid I won't be understood. And he goes through and he goes through and he talks about this. And where he ends up is this, is that it's only when we know Jesus can we hear criticism and not react and not defend ourselves. Uh, and he says it's one thing to speak truth and love, and here's the challenge for husbands because we're the gorillas here in the room, is how to listen to your wife when she's upset with you, is to listen in love and receive her pain, her disappointment, her frustration as it goes on. Paul says in verse 12, put on love, so chosen by God for this new life, kind of life. Dress in the wardrobe of God picked up for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and, and completely as the Master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. Wear love. When I am being loving the way Jesus loves me, I wear it. And it is thrilling. Because I know I have the answer for myself and for you. Because I, I know there's no one like Jesus when it comes to the pain and the struggle that we have. So this morning as we come to the table this morning, I want to say to you, this is the most expensive meal you'll ever eat. It costs God everything to send his son, his only son so that you might have this feast that he prepares for you in the presence of your enemies. And this morning you might show up to church and you go, my biggest enemy is my husband. <laughs> Here's the feast. You might have showed up this morning thinking, my biggest enemy is my wife. <laughs> and I need a lot of help. And Jesus has a feast of forgiveness and love and acceptance and redemption. Jesus has come to be our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. And to that end, we can be thankful. Let us pray. Jesus, we're grateful this morning that you never give up on us. We are works in your progress. Your trajectory towards us is love. So we come to the table. Would you feed us till we want no more? Amen.